0: that was a lot let's turn to Matthew chapter 12 if you would so Matthew chapter 12 is where we're going to be and we're going to pick up in verse 38 where we hopefully prayerfully Lord willing will finish the 12th chapter of Matthew as we continue our journey through the gospel according to Matthew if you don't have your Bible with you and you want to borrow one of ours Uh, feel free to grab one out of the seat pockets in front of you. There should be some in every row. If you don't have a Bible at all, uh, congratulations. You just got yourself a Bible. That's yours. It's in your hand. All right, and so as we head that direction, I'll remind you that the Gospel of Matthew is actually written topical, not chronological. And so what we mean by that is uh, the other synoptic accounts, uh, Mark and Luke, are written in chronological order, whereas uh, Matthew is actually written topically. He intentionally selects various stories and topics to uh, lay out his message, which is essentially this, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And so he's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, uh, one that is very religious, in fact, and he's wanting to lay out stories intentionally for this reason. So that's the main theme throughout the book of Matthew, that he is the Messiah. And the key word in Matthew, you might recall, is the word fulfilled so as we go through the book you'll see multiple times Matthew will say Jesus fulfilled this thing and what he's really doing is going back to the Old Testament to those prophecies and he's laying out there for these men that would have known their Bible how exactly he did fulfill scripture now one of the sub themes that's taking place and we really saw that start to happen around the tenth chapter is there's this the subtopic and that is the Pharisees hatred for Jesus so we see that they're, they're continual uh, being upset with what he's doing and what he's all about. And the real issue that they have is that as he's being presented as the Messiah, he did not live up to their expectations. They had all these expectations of what they thought the Messiah would be. Uh, most importantly, they thought he would be a political ruler. He was going to come in and dominate the Romans, kick them out of their country, and let them have it back. And yet he did not seem to be doing this in any way, shape, or form. And so uh, the other thing he did was he upset their religious systems. He came in with these new teachings, different ideas, and it essentially upset the apple cart, as it were. And so they were upset by these, uh, these perceptions they had not being fulfilled. Now, what we found last week is that they were now taking these miracles and the signs and the things that Jesus did, and they were attributing his works not to the Messiah, but instead to Satan. And this is sort of the the last stage that we get to as a society, where we actually take the good things of God, and we account those to Satan, and we take the, the the bad things that are taking place all around, and we try to tell everyone how good they are, where good becomes bad and bad becomes good. And so as they come to Jesus here in the 38th verse of chapter 12, what's interesting is they are now going to ask him for more signs. He's shown them all these signs and wonders, and they're going to come to him, and they want him to perform yet again and give them another sign. So in verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And so their question about signs and wonders is, can you show us more signs and more wonders? And what they're essentially telling him is that they lack faith. That the request for signs, the constant need for signs and God to be showing something amazing in our lives exhibits a lack of faith. And this was something that plays out throughout the the lives of the Jewish people. God was always doing the miraculous for them, and yet it was never quite enough and Paul actually addresses this in 1st Corinthians chapter 1 and there he's addressing an audience that's a, a mixed group it's both uh, Jewish and it's Gentile or Greek in particular and so as he's addressing this audience in 1st uh, Corinthians if I can find it 1st Corinthians chapter 1 verse 22 he, he addresses the particular hang-ups that each one of these uh, groups has he says for the Jews request a sign And the Greeks seek after wisdom. You see, for the Greek people, intellect was their big deal. They were all about how much can you know. You think about all the Greek philosophers that were out there. They wanted uh, someone to be essentially the perfect man, which is why the Gospel of Luke that's written to a Greek audience, he addresses Jesus as the perfect man, full of wisdom. And so Paul goes on in verse 23, but he says, but we preach Christ crucified and to the Jews, this is a stumbling block. You see, if, if you're looking for a miracle man and yet he is crucified, this is stumbling for the Jewish people. They did not get it. But then he goes on to say, and to the Greeks, this is foolishness. To those that are seeking wisdom and, and intellect, why on earth would anyone lay down his life for other people? That doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. In verse 24, he says, but those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so to the Greek, this seems foolish. To the Jew, this is a stumbling block. But what Paul's saying is to those who are called, those who answer the call of Christ, this is actually where they find their strength. And what we're going to find here in the next several verses is Jesus is going to actually lay out that he is both the wisdom they were searching for and he is the miracle that they were searching for now the issue really at hand and what he's going to address is that these men that are approaching him they have a condition and it's a heart condition That's ultimately the issue that they have. It's not that he doesn't perform enough signs and wonders that they haven't seen enough. In fact, more than any people throughout history, they saw more signs and had more light than anyone had ever seen. If you think about this, the multitudes came to him, and he healed. Last week we looked at he healed everyone that showed up. So there were plenty of things for them to see, and yet it was never enough, and that's always the problem with the sign. A sign always leaves us looking for the next sign and the next sign. In the next sign. And so what he's going to address this morning for us are three particular things. Uh, first, he's going to review their history in verses 39 through 42. Secondly, he's going to reveal their, uh, their hearts, their hard hearts, in verses 43 through 45. And then thirdly, he's going to rearrange their family concept in verses 46 through 50. And so let's pick up as he reviews their history in verse 39. But he, Jesus, answered to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. In verse 42, and the queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came to the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. And so you see these two different things that Jesus is going to address. He's going to address both the Jew with their own prophet and the wisdom of Solomon, secondly. And so to begin, he's going to talk about the sign of Jonah. What in the world is the sign of Jonah? Now, we all remember the story of Jonah from Bible school. He's swallowed by the great fish. But what Jesus is actually doing here, and you're going to find this throughout the New Testament, one of the catchphrases we like to have is, is the the Old Testament concealed is the New Testament revealed. That in the New Testament, there's actually revelation that unfolds Scripture from the days of old, from the Old Testament. It's really expounding upon what the Hebrews already had in their very own hands. And so he's pointing back to the story of Jonah. And what he's pointing us to is that Jonah is actually a type of Jesus. So types, by the way, before you, you, you know, stand back and wonder how in the world is Jonah a type of Jesus, typology is never perfect. Because we're human and we're not perfect. And so the type isn't perfect, but just let your mind go there with me, uh, if you would, for a minute. And think about the story of Jonah. He was called by God to go to Nineveh to speak to, to intercede on behalf of God for a people that were condemned. The, the people in Nineveh were the Assyrians. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And at this point in time in world history, they were the world power. They were dominating all of the Middle East. They were going and taking lands and peoples and crushing them. And for Jonah, he was called to go to these people and preach to them before God's wrath was poured out on them. Now Jonah, as you might recall, had no interest in going to the Assyrians. In fact, he got on a boat in Joppa and went the exact opposite direction. If Nineveh was was here, Tarshish was here. He was going as far away from where God commanded him to go as he possibly could. And for good reason, too, by the way. I just mentioned the Assyrians were awful people. In fact, so bad, this is a little PG-13, so kids, you can do the earmuffs thing. Uh, When they would go into a village, they would actually take fish hooks, and they would hook them through the mouths of their captives, and then daisy-chain them together so that they could not escape as they led them out of a village. And to make sure they couldn't carry any weapons, uh, they would do this while they were naked so you can imagine the humiliation and the pain that was involved and then because they were increasingly evil they would actually for fun skin people alive and then make furniture out of their skin so really wonderful folks that Jonah is now called to go into and to preach to so now that gives you a little backdrop when we hear the Bible story and we think why wouldn't you just go and do what God said well this is why Entire villages, in fact, would commit mass suicide just to avoid being taken captive by the Assyrians. So, all right, Jonah, go to those people. So he heads the opposite direction, and he's there in the boat. And as he's in the boat, a great storm, a storm that's so awful that the the sailors that were on board knew there was something supernatural about it. They didn't believe in God. They were pagans, so they believed in many gods. But they woke Jonah up, who was sleeping in the belly of the, of the uh, boat, and they said, listen, man, you've got to pray to your God for what's going on. And so Jonah gets up, and what's he do? He says, take me and throw me overboard so that you might live. Now here's where we get some typology. He sacrificed himself, his own life, for the life of the men on the boat. And instantly the wrath of God was stopped the storm stopped because Jonah gave up his own life now Jonah wasn't doing this because he was you know a wonderful servant of the Lord he just wanted to be done with the mission to go to Nineveh so again the, the typology isn't perfect but what we find is a great fish then comes along and swallows Jonah and takes him three days and three nights he spends in the belly of the fish only to then be, after the third evening, uh, puked out on shore, where he then is told, go to Nineveh. Do what I told you to do in the first place. And so he ends up uh, in Nineveh, where he is to intercede for a people that were doomed. They were destined for destruction. And he gives this really rousing message, this evangelical message that goes like this. Forty days and Nineveh will fall. Forty days and Nineveh will fall. That's it. That's the message that Jonah gave. Not exactly inspiring. So for many of you, when you think this message wasn't good, it's way better than Jonah's was. All right? Forty days. That was the whole message. And yet, what we find in the story of Jonah is that in the city of Nineveh, 200,000 people all repented. All from this half-hearted message given by a puked-up prophet on the shore. They all repented, which is precisely why Jesus says the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, I'm in verse 41, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and yet there's a greater than Jonah here in front of you. Here's Jesus, the very Messiah, standing in front of them preaching day in and day out. Laying messages out for them. No doubt, way better than what Jonah had to say. And yet these men were so hard-hearted, they refused to repent. And one of the things that would have affected them with this story, by the way, is who repented? Gentiles, right? That was precisely why Jonah didn't want to go. These men were awful, and what he knew about his God was he was merciful. That if God, if they even slightly turned back to them, then he would, he would have mercy upon them. And he didn't want this for these folks. So this is the first condemnation on them, that they did not repent the way even Nineveh repented. And then secondly, he mentions the queen of the south. This is from Second Chronicles chapter 9. He's speaking specifically of the queen of Sheba. This is that queen over an area that we would consider modern-day Ethiopia. And so she, the queen of Sheba, hears of the wisdom of Solomon. Solomon, you might recall, is the son of David, the one that's promised to take over the kingdom. And as Solomon takes over at the ripe old age of 15 for his dad David, God comes to him in a vision and says, ask for anything and I'll give it to you. Can you imagine being a 15-year-old young man and God says, ask me for anything. And so what's Solomon do? He says, can you give me wisdom? I'm not worthy to judge your people or to go in and out. I don't know my right hand from my left. Just give me wisdom. And so because Solomon did not ask for money, he did not ask for power, he didn't ask for any of the things that most 15-year-olds are going to ask for, a Ferrari, he didn't. Instead, God gave him wisdom beyond anything anyone had ever seen in the world to date. And then he also gave him all the things he didn't ask for, the money, the power, All these things were what Solomon possessed. And so, so much so that the queen of Sheba actually hears about this and she decides to make a trip north and see what is this guy all about. And apparently Solomon was such a masterful guy that even his table setting, the queen of Sheba was convicted by the way they set the table and the way the the waiters and the waitresses came in and served people, that his wisdom was so great that she actually came to believe in Yahweh, in the true and living God. In fact, to this day, if you go to Ethiopia, there's a huge contingent there of both Jewish people and Christian people, largely because of this story of the Queen of Sheba. And so interestingly enough, you've got now, again, another group of Gentile people that just because of wisdom, the first one a sign, the second one because of wisdom, they turned and repented and came to know the Lord. And what's Jesus say to these men? but that the queen of, of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Here's Jesus with teachings like they'd never heard. I mean, simple things, and yet he broke them down in a way that people could understand. They, the Bible tells us they marveled at what he said, and yet they still rejected it. That's what we're reading about here. And so when we say, Lord, show us a sign, right? All of us have said it. Lord, if you just show me a sign, just show me something so that I can believe. What he's saying here is, I am the sign. Jesus is the sign. So when we look around and we wonder, what miracle have we seen? I would encourage you to do this. Turn to the right. Turn to the left. There's your sign. You want a sign, look around. Look around. There's a whole group of people sitting in a church this morning in the middle of a pandemic. What in the world are you doing here? There's a guy sitting on a swivel stool that has no business up here preaching the word of God. What in the world am I doing here? There are miracles all around us if we would just open our eyes. Christ in you, the hope of glory, that's the miracle, folks. That's it. That's the sign that he is still doing today what he's done for thousands of years. And by the way, he did this not when you were all cleaned up and looking nice like the Ashley twins in their little outfits. He did this when we were yet sinners Christ died for us. That's what Paul says in Romans. While you were yet a sinner, while you were at your absolute worst is when he came and gave his absolute best for you and I. That's the sign. Now, continuing on, and as we go to verse 43, this is going to seem out of place as Jesus is going to review. He's going to, he's going to mention their unclean uh, hearts, reveal their hearts to them is, is what he's going to do. It, it, this story is going to seem out of place. We're going to wonder what in the world. But keep in mind, he's teaching this all the way through chapter 12. So these things are all interconnected. In verse 43, and when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, He goes through dry places, seeking rest, and finds none. And then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. And then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation." And so seemingly, Jesus takes a departure and he begins to talk about the demonic realm. And we wonder, what in the world? How does this story fit in? Hang with me for just a minute. He, he begins by uh, giving us some insight to the demonic. And so uh, if y'all are creeped out by this, just hang on for a second. Uh, the demonic realm, it, it operates in the spirit. And for us, it's hard for us to understand because we don't see in the spirit. We see uh, only in the physical realm. And yet what we find here is uh, that These spirits want to embody a physical human being. Now, each of us is uh, made up of three parts. We are body, we are soul, and we are spirit. The body is how we interact with one another. This is the medium which we communicate. I know you based on your physical presence. And yet we know, because we've all been to a funeral, that what uh, was that person is not just merely their physical presence. We know that what animated them when it leaves, it must have gone somewhere. It's just common sense. So I am what you see here, but the reality is I am much more than this. I am soul, and I am spirit, and that's the peace that's eternal. And so if you think I'm awesome now, just wait until you see spirit me. Spirit me is going to be like three times more awesome, maybe a hundred times. I mean, hang on with me. We'll, we'll, you'll get to see it someday for eternity. But the reality is... Uh, For the time being, these satanic uh, spirits want to embody a physical presence. And this also relates us back to these guys talking about this demonic. The reason Jesus ties all this together is because, remember, they were saying the wonderful works that he was doing, they're giving credit to the demonic realm for this. So Jesus is going to wrap it all back around and say, you want to give credit to the demonic, I'll instruct you about how the demonic realm works. So our bodies again their dwellings is what the Bible calls them or tents or tabernacles is another way to look at this they're all the same translation and so I'll turn with you to Romans chapter 8 verse 11 this is what the apostle Paul has to say to the Romans Romans 8 verse 11 he says this but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you there's that word twice tabernacles with you so if the spirit of god dwells in you then it's like a earnest deposit for your eternal life do you understand what i'm saying it, the, him living within you, this is your guarantee to get to go to heaven. Now, to move on from there, and I promise to put a bow on this, 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He also has given us of His Spirit. He's speaking specifically of the Holy Spirit. And then back a page to verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. This is meaning the evil ones. Because he who dwells in you is greater than he who is in this world. And so what Jesus is sharing and what you need to understand about the demonic is that for those who have accepted Jesus as their Savior and have invited the Holy Spirit to live within you, you cannot also have anything evil or dwelling within you. No demonic force can actually possess you because he will not allow it. You are either one or the other. There's no in between. And so as the Holy Spirit resides within us, this is actually our defense to not have any demon possession for one who is saved. Now, we cannot be possessed by the demonic, but we can, as Christians, be oppressed by the demonic from the outside in, which is precisely Why John is writing to them to say, listen, hang on, greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. It's an encouragement to say, while the the forces of uh, Satan want to oppress you, that greater is he who possesses you. You're his. You're his child. He is going to come back for you. That's the reason he's given you the earnest deposit of the Holy Spirit within each one of us. And so, all that to say that what Jesus is actually talking about is that he has come for the purpose of transformation, not for reformation. Go back with me to uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Here what he says is, is, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Don't be conformed by the world. Don't be changed and pressured by the world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God in your life. And so what he wants to do is actually come in and transform, not merely just see reformed lives. What we so often want to do, and what these Pharisees were really wanting to do, is they wanted to clean things up, they wanted to get everything looking good. They wanted to get the house swept and cleaned and picked up. They wanted a reformation. They wanted things to look right, and yet they did not want transformation, which is a change on the inside out. And so when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, what he's really doing is he's coming in, and he is positionally making you perfect for all of eternity. You are set in your spot. You're all good to go. Practically, however, we're all working this thing out one day at a time. Like, practically, we are, he is improving us as we go. Things are falling off. What he's essentially doing is cleaning up our house for us. We get to where we want to clean things up and then invite him in. He's saying, no, invite me in, and then I'll clean it up. Now, when we go and talk about this next piece, and this is a little more controversial as if the other wasn't, uh, What you find in the teaching here is that the reprobate heart is actually less dangerous than the reformed heart. Or maybe the better way to say it is there's more danger for a reformed heart than there is for a reprobate heart. And where I'm going with that is, for us, as we try to clean things up on our own, and we try to move the furniture out of the way, and yet we do not invite Jesus to come in and live in us, that's actually more attractive to satan than if we're just a jacked up mess if we're just a jacked up mess what you find is when people are in that spot they're actually more willing and more likely to go god i can't do it you're gonna have to come fix this because i can't but when we put it out there like we are facebook perfect we got it all going on it is really difficult to come to jesus and say fix this thing so a personal story when uh, I was working for Rural King in 2014 and career was just going through the roof. I mean, we had it all going on. We lived in the best subdivision in Charleston. We had one of the nicest houses in the best subdivisions in Charleston. To everyone on the outside, we looked like we had it going on. I mean, we had three beautiful kids. The pictures looked unbelievable on the book of face. And yet, the reality is behind the scenes, uh, it was a disaster. Angela was unhappy. I was unhappy. I thought that I was giving them everything they ever wanted and asked for, and yet we were both miserable. And so, as I'm coming back from southern Ohio, driving uh, towards Cincinnati, and and it's kind of the foothills of these little mountains that are there in southern Ohio, I remember thinking, I I thought that I did everything right. Like, I thought that the point of this was to have this cleaned up, dressed up, nice-looking life, and yet... Uh, I'm I am miserable. I can't seem to get any peace with anything I'm doing. And so the thought came to my mind as I'm driving there and I'm looking and the hills are rolling off the side of the road. I wonder if he'd be better if I just yanked the wheel. <laughs> I bet I can make it look like an accident. I mean, the truth is she's going to be way happier if I take care of this thing right now. She's going to have plenty of insurance money, company have to buy my stock back. They're going to be set. I mean, she's gorgeous. It's going to take her about 15 minutes to probably find another me. I mean, it's not going to take long to replace this. The kids will be happier. I, I had convinced myself that there was no way out. Why? Because I cleaned it all up on the outside. If I admitted to people just how bad it was going, It would be heartbreaking. It would be too difficult. There's no way that I could ever get out of this spot. And so that was my plan. For whatever reason, God, obviously, I didn't act on it. But I was pretty serious that day about just finishing things off. Now, fast forward about 15 months later, and we're in Farmington. And we tried to reset, and I've shared with you guys that mess that didn't actually happen, yet we, we find ourselves back in a church for the first time in years. It had been five or six years since we'd set foot in one. And God had convicted me on the inside this time, not on the outside, but on the inside. And where the peace came was on my knees, with my hands in the air, at the foot of our bed. And I said, I, I can't, I can't do it anymore you got to take this. you got to take this from me and come and dwell here. You have to come in here and live because I can't manage it anymore. From that day, things started to change. From that day, the cleanup really began to happen. All the work I did to make my house perfectly set in order was a waste of my time because I didn't set this piece in order first. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate to these people. He called them whitewashed tombs. Tombs that have been washed on the outside, but what's in a tomb? Dead men's bones, dead on the inside. Now, the transformation that takes place is like a butterfly. We might look the same on the outside, maybe I'm a little pudgier than what I used to be, but still the same to interact with. And yet, on the inside, complete change. Working things out, yes, still day by day. But this very same thing can happen for each and every one of us just by giving up, (laughs) by surrender. Continuing on now to verse 46. As he untangles the tangled up family mess that they created for themselves, in verse forty six, and while he was talking multitudes to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside and seeking to speak with him. And then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, seeking to speak with you. Verse forty eight But he answered and said to the uh, he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards the disciples, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, and whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so what we find here is that in Judaism, and this was actually God intended, by the way, that the family was to to be uh, critically important. It was to be central. If you think about it, God started with the family, Adam and Eve, He then restarted with a family with Noah and his three sons. And so the family dynamic was and is critically important to what God wanted to do. It's central to their faith. And yet here's Jesus and his family. They come and they think he is crazy. He's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. What's going on? Like he's there preaching and teaching, claiming to be the Messiah But what he's uh, really experiencing is the same thing, by the way, that many of you are going to experience. If you decide to let him transform you from the inside out, your family's going to think you lost your stinking mind. This is precisely what happens for Jesus. Now, Jesus had a family. So he had many of the same family struggles that we have. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. She had other sons and daughters, we're told. In Scripture, two of her sons, in fact, wrote two books in the New Testament. The book of James in the book of Jude, are written by half-brothers of Jesus. But while he was alive, they did not believe in him. They believed after the resurrection when he appeared to them. And so Jesus, in this spot, isn't trying to downplay earthly families. What he's really trying to do is, is explain there's a greater emphasis on the spiritual family. The family of God is what he's really trying to emphasize because these families are eternal. These families are going to go on for all of eternity. Now, if your earthly family and your spiritual family are the same, praise the Lord. That's what we all hope for. But the reality of this is is that these are the families that we're going to take with us for all time's sake. For the family structure that Jesus is talking about that was important to God from the very beginning, the point of it was to actually be attractive to the nations all around. The Jewish people were to be this family that was so different, lived so other than, that all the nations said, boy, we want to know more about your God. We want to understand why is it you're able to take a day off or a year off? How is it your God continues to bless you? We want to know more. And then, because of that, they'd want to be included into the family. And Instead, what's happened is they've become small-minded and Exclusive they begin to come up with all kinds of ways and rules and regulations of why you could not be a part of our family. So God gives them blessings and signs and things like uh, circumcision is going to be a sign for you. It's going to set you apart from all these other nations. And yet as people wanted to come into the fold and into the Christian family, what do they immediately want to do to Gentiles? They want them to be uh, circumcised. Can you imagine? Welcome to church. Here's the preacher with a knife. Anybody else excited about coming to church today? So all these things that were meant to be inclusive, meant to include people in, they actually began to make them uh, exclusive. Ways that that people couldn't become a part of things. So when we talk about things like uh, baptism, by the way, you do not have to be baptized to be a believer in Jesus, to be saved for all of eternity. You do not have to do that. That's not a rule. It is an awesome thing to do. It's a wonderful chance to show an outward sign of an inward change to show people you're a part of this new family. It's expressive. It's not meant to be exclusive. And so for the Jewish people, they become small-minded and closed off to the world outside. It sounds a little bit like church at times, doesn't it? We become so closed-minded to our rules and our regulations, and this is the way things must be done, or you can't be a part of this thing. That was never God's plan. It was to come in here, and that's not to absolve sin, by the way. That's not to say sin doesn't apply to people. No, what he's saying is, come in here, believe in me first, and then we'll work on your sin. (laughs) We will fix this thing once we get you into the fold. That was God's plan. That's why as he addressed people that had sin issues, he would say things like, now leave from here and go and sin no more. He doesn't say, you can't come to me until you clean that up. That's the the inclusivity that's supposed to be a part of this Christian family. Now then, how do they become a part of the Christian family? That's the last question. Verse 50, Jesus makes it pretty clear. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So if you want to be a part of the family, this is it. This is all the harder it is. You just have to do the will of the Father. That seems simple enough. So what then is the will of the Father? John chapter 6, verse 40. Last spot we'll go this morning, I promise. And this is the will of him who sent me. Seems like a good lead in. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Here's the will of the Father, to see the Son, to witness what he's up to, to believe in him. That's it. It's not any harder than that. It's not more difficult than that, to see and then to believe what he is up to. That's the will of the Father. And it's not a one-time see and believe. It's an everyday. It's a one-time acceptance for all of eternity, but, but the witnessing of what he is up to, the encouragement here is to see it in the daily, in the daily, when so often we look around and we see what's taking place, and we can, if we're not careful, actually attribute what he's up to to the work of the enemy. And yet what he's shown us is day after day, he's actually up to all kinds of good things in our lives if we'll just open our eyes. There's the Messiah, just like for these men. He's standing right in front of them, and they would not open their eyes. That's what he's saying to us today. And so the last question to leave as we talk about family units and family structures, it's how have you positioned him in your life? How have you, as a people and as families, positioned him? Now, I say that because it's really easy to get him out of place. His desire is to be at the very top, at the very top and let everything else flow from there. It's very easy for us to let him slide to spot two or spot three and let the family slide up, let a husband slide up, let a wife slide up, or kids. This is easy to do, and yet the reminder is daily to put him first. And, and I've mentioned this to you before. It's not because he's an egomaniac. It's not because God just needs all the glory for everything. It's because it's healthy. It's best for us. Because when we get it out of place, And think about this with me logically for a minute. When we get this thing out of place, what happens when God gets sick? What happens when God leaves us? What happens when God dies? Then what are we left with? We're left with nothing. And so the reality is why he says he wants to be in first, it's healthy for you and I. When we have it in the right perspective, then our world isn't shook when things happen when it seems like the enemy is crashing down from all angles, when you have your anchor set in him, greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. That much is true for everyone who sees the Son and believes in him daily. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. Some of these things, Lord, they are hard for us to completely take in and yet they are so simple at the same time father forgive us when we are selfish forgive us when we get things out of order thank you that you are so willing to forgive even these evil Ninevites. then by all means you are eager to forgive us thank you that that mercy peace is a core central part of who you are. Father, as I pray, and there are folks that are wondering if they've got things so cleaned up they cannot give it over to you because it's too, it looks too good and it'd be too hurtful to the pride to admit that they don't have it together. Lord, please give them the courage to accept you, to take you into the house, to let you come in and transform from the inside out, Lord. Lord, I pray for that this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: You please stand as we sing our closing song. Place, I worship you. I worship you. You are way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. You are here, touching every heart. I worship You. I worship You. You are here, healing every heart. I worship You. I worship You. You are waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper. Worship you, worship you. You are here, mending every heart. I worship you, I worship you. You are way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper. Light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. You are waymaker, way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper. Light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. And the church says, amen.
0: All right. So if you find yourself in a spot, or you've got it so set up you can't, uh, you can't lay it down. Let me encourage you to find someone to lay it down to. That's the other piece that the family of God is supposed to be for. Not to spread it all around town. I can assure you I'm getting old enough now. I can't remember what most people tell me yesterday. So you don't have to worry about me spreading anything. I probably forgot. Find someone to be accountable to. Find someone to help hold your hands up like Moses had with Aaron and her. They won the battle because Moses' hands were raised in actually in surrender. (laughs) That's how they won. So find someone in that spot and come to them and let them just pray for you. I'll be here hanging around. Uh, Be happy to pray for you. As a reminder, we got lunch, we got a wedding, we got all kinds of stuff. Please guys hang around as we as the family of God get to celebrate a wedding today. God bless you guys. See you next week.